Hello and welcome to the Animation Communication Podcast. For your source of discussion about animation, film, fandom, and more. So please join our host, I Love Kim Possible a Lot or KP, and Lyle Convoy or Lyle Manbad. Hi everyone, welcome to this um, episode of Animation Communication. Um, back to more of an educational part of the communication part. So if you don't know me, hi, I'm Rachel, or I love Kim Possible a lot, a lot. I'm a YouTuber, I'm an artist, um, I make funny jokes, allegedly, I don't know. Um, but, you know, if you're here for the podcast, especially um, this episode specifically, or some of the more educational-based episodes, you'll probably care to learn about the process of art and animation and, and vibing. So um, speaking of vibe, um, I have with me my friend David. So David, can you introduce yourself and, you know, just kind of maybe like how you got into animation in general, like a little bit of your background? Yeah. Uh, so I wrote and directed a short film recently called The Cocoon, which has been doing the festival circuit. Uh, but to tell you a little bit more about myself, uh, from New York City, I really got into animation and directing and film through the writing element of it. I wanted to be a screenwriter pretty early on from a teenager and uh, from the writing I got into directing and then from the directing I got into animation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I, it just depends as far as what your direction is, but I've, I've heard that a lot, especially with um, you know, I have, I have friends that are um, actors, not actors, um, they're writers for animation, and they kind of just love the art of animation, even though they might not be the best draftsmen themselves, so they just kind of want to contribute. So uh, props to you for kind of going back and, like, you know, learning your, your animation principles and all that stuff. I can I can tell you you know your stuff from um, this piece that I just saw. So. <laughs> my my um, animation team might challenge you on that, but <laughs> no, uh, yeah, it was, it was a I great mean... process. <laughs> General terminology, you know, you know, um, squash and stretch and, you know, you can, you can give critique, which is like a big, a big thing versus just someone who um, is kind of starting out from the gate uh, with not a lot of background knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I grew up doing a lot of art. My mother was a very terrific artist. And so I had a, a, a pretty good drawing and painting background, studio art background. Uh, but it's it's very different when you try and bring that to animation because you're doing mm -hmm. 24 drawings per second. And so when you add that extra element of motion, that creates just this whole new layer of direction and like understanding the composition as opposed to just doing still drawings and paintings. So yeah. Um Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was just really interesting, um, you know, me coming from a bit of a studio art background and mainly coming from writing and then directing some live action stuff to doing animation and working with an animation team. And there was a, a huge learning curve and a lot of growing pains. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a really wonderful medium. I, I feel that, especially because it's not something... Um, from what I've, I mean, from my experience as far as animating, it's definitely something you kind of have to learn your core skills versus live action. You kind of can develop more of an intri intrinsic um, understanding of it just because of how much we, how much live action we consume, like how much, you know, the general consumer is watching movies and stuff like that. Versus if animation, if like your composition is off or, you know, um, I deal with a lot of, you know, children who ask me if, for advice and their proportions aren't quite there yet. You know, it's it's harder to kind of, 
um, you need you you definitely need your core knowledge if you're gonna you know be taken seriously as a as a as an animator. So it's definitely um, it's definitely a different swing. So um, let's see my first question. Um, so do you have any general artist artistic inspirations for both either this piece or just in general? I know you mentioned your mother. Like, do you have any favorite artists? Um, uh, watching the piece, I kind of got a vibe for um, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but uh, very. Uh, with your sketchy line um, line work and stuff like that, a uh, very take on me kind of vibe. The the music video from the eighties. Um, so um, so uh, what what are kind of your um, or famous animators that you admire, or just kind of like um, any any basis for that as far as kind of just your general mood board essentially, your color theory, you know, some color theory um, plots or you know just any anything like that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the take on me, aha. Uh -huh. uh, I had a feeling. <laughs> no, I, I, it actually wasn't something that I had thought of, and you're the first person to bring that up, and now that you mentioned it, I'm like, oh, man, yeah, totally. And I believe that was done with, with Rotoscope. Um, yes, yeah, take on me was, was Rotoscope, that was, sure, It wasn't so. something I was thinking of while I was, uh, while I was doing it. It is, uh, it is a very good reference, though. Um, I think when we were coming up with the aesthetic and the style, you know, rather than purely thinking about, okay, what are other artists we like? What are other, uh, you know, animated films that we like? I kind of started from a place of, well, what does this narrative, what does this story want? What kind of style and, and what kind of aesthetic is called for based on the narrative? And the film is very much about embracing imperfection, about taking the things about yourself that you don't like, that you wish you can change, that you're trying to perfect. And rather than cleaning them up and getting rid of them, you sort of learn to embrace them, transform them, control them in order to create something beautiful. And that's a nice metaphor, I think, for the creative process, but it applies in all other aspects of people's lives in, in tons of different ways. And, and so when people watch it, I hope that it resonates with them uh, and the specifics of their life, even though the actual film itself is about a dude mopping a floor and it's very allegorical. But all of that's to say with regard to style is, you know, the theme of the film, what it's about is embracing imperfection. And so when I was talking with the animators and our, our concept designers and our storyboard artists about what aesthetic we wanted to craft, this sort of hand-drawn look, loose lines, there's a lot of flashing construction lines, uh, like you know, T-bars and circles that uh, would normally be found in a sketch. I wanted to embrace that roughness. And so, uh, yeah, just talking with Andres, our lead animator, and uh, Catherine, our storyboard artist, and Marin, our concept designer, we, we really started from a place of, well, here's what the story's about, embracing imperfection. How do we come up with an aesthetic that matches that. And that's where we really came upon the hand-drawn style and all of the loose lines and stuff that I was just talking about. Uh, but beyond that, there are, there are some references. There's a great a short film called Sisyphus, and I think that's from like the 1970s. And it's just a, a, a wonderful little, it almost looks like painted animation of a guy rolling the rock up the hill. And thematically, that seemed to match a lot with the story. And then stylistically, there was this kind of you can feel the hand of the artist. You can feel that it's not pristine and perfect. It's not, you know, Pixar-y. It's not Disney-ish. It, it has a roughness to it. 
And so that was sort of our guiding light throughout this whole process was like, how can we find moments where we embrace roughness, embrace kind of the hand of the artist where it feels like it's animated, it should feel like it's drawn. And that's kind of how we came up with the, the whole aesthetic. So kind of a non-answer to your question in terms of like references and other artists, because <laughs> okay. I guess the real answer is we weren't specifically trying to think of other artists. We were trying to think about, okay, well, what was the story? And then how do we build an aesthetic from there? And I think too, um, since, you know, since you did, you did mention the take on me thing, it's like, um, you know, I'm sure you, you resonate too, as far as just kind of consuming a lot of media and kind of like as an artist, recontextualizing it and, and kind of spitting it out in your own image. So maybe like something like maybe like the take on me, for instance, was something you weren't thinking about actively, but you know subconsciously you were like, oh, I kind of like you know that's kind of like you know maybe the vibe that might work, and then you know it just takes someone to point it out to be like, oh yeah, I yeah, I see it. So you know it's it's interesting and like it's a very you know I I really liked it because it was a very you know creative process very like you know you mentioned your mother was studio artist and I could like I can tell that you know there's a like he's he's drawing in charcoal and you know he's kind of like building up and um if for for anyone out there who's never messed with charcoal before it it messy so um for sure especially if you're not using charcoal pencils if you're using the um this I forgot the um the soft sticks and stuff like that I really like it as a medium, but I just prefer using the, the pencils because they're a little bit more controlled as far as just not getting everywhere. Like I always like would I always like touch my face when I'm drawing and then everyone's just like, why are you like have charcoal over your face? I'm just like, I'm sorry, it's my process. So, you know, it's very like like you can tell you you can tell that there's very obvious um, implications of like the even the mediums of, you know, the the um what your character is, is using which you know again requires insider like traditional art knowledge and not just like an an, an animator like you know tune boom kind of like everything being on model kind of style so yeah yeah 100 percent. just the, the the choice of medium or the the materials and and this was done in a tablet in macromedia flash but it's it's created to have this sort of you know pencil on paper look but just even those mm -hmm. choices of like, okay, what materials do we want this to look like it's done with, all kind of affects the overall feel of the piece. And uh, I, I actually did just think of, I was, I was trying to Google it because I was trying to remember his name uh, just now, the one very, very clear artist reference that uh, I had bounced around with Andres, our lead animator, and he does come from a traditional background. His name's uh, Aaron Blaze or Blaze. I don't know. Ah, yeah. Brother Bear Man. So yeah, I mean, he did you know Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. I mean, he's responsible for you know some of the greatest animated films ever. And and so he had this video on YouTube um, about uh, the boiling line effect and how to create that effect. If, if, people listening don't know, uh, when you watch sort of hand-drawn animation and the lines, the edges of the characters kind of feel like they're vibrating a little bit, it's a very sort of traditional look. It happened originally because uh, when doing one frame to the next on paper, you know, the lines, the edges wouldn't always exactly match up when doing it by hand. And so it would look like the line is wobbling a little bit. Um, there's a tutorial on YouTube by Aaron Blaze about how to do that. And uh, it, was, it was like this video of an elephant uh, and it's called Trunk Troubles. And when I had seen that, I was like, that's 
the aesthetic we want. Like that's the style we want. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it came about again from you know just knowing we needed a style that was rough and sketched feeling, and then the producer uh, Andrew Cohen and I and, and the animators and everybody was kind of just scouring YouTube for like little references and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And so yeah, th- that one actually, if I had to pick one artist and one reference, it would be uh, the Elephant Trunk Troubles with the boiling line effect. I think too. I mean, it, I think it kind of ties w- well to your thesis too, because like, you know, like that the 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 sketchy line art um, was very much a staple of 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 Disney fifties Disney, where you know they did, just didn't have the technology to, or really they just didn't have the time be, to really just make sure the line art was jumpy. But over time, people kind of developed nostalgia for it, and now it's like very much a, you know like an artist kind of like doing that on purpose to kind of get that effect. So um, I think that just ties well, again, to your, to your thesis from what I can tell as far as just kind of, you know, embracing mistakes and making them part of the bigger sphere of what you're trying to create as an artist. So. Yes, and to actually take that further and, and maybe to a paradoxical point, one of the funny things about making this film and going very specifically for that rough, imperfect aesthetic was we were often looking for moments that were too clean and trying to mess them up a little bit. Moments that the lines mm-hmm. were too tight and trying to loosen them up. And so what ended up happening was there were moments where it was like we had to do revisions, we had to do new takes because they looked too clean. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like you said, in the past tradition, it was like, oh, well, that was sort of a consequence of just the lack of technology at the time and for us it was like oh no we have mm-hmm. technology we're like we're very deliberately trying not to make it look super pristine and so uh my animators would sometimes bemoan the fact that i was like oh yeah no it looks too good they're like what i was like it, <laughs> yeah i was like wabi sabi what, what, what a directorial note you know <laughs> yeah i'm just like make it look less good like it looks too good <laughs> And uh, I was like, yeah, no, I was like, more imperfect, more imperfect, more imperfect. Oh, that's perfect. That's the perfect amount of imperfect. Great. Uh, so it was quite this paradox where, you know, we're, we're shooting for a, a target that um, is kind of contrary to what, you know, your instincts want, as especially as, you know, our talented animators are a little bit perfectionistic. So um, it was really funny. Animators, perfectionists? No way. No way. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this was like a funny assignment for them where, you know, I'm sure they will never have a director again in their careers telling them to make their animation look less perfect, like less good. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the target we were aiming for. It was a real funny paradox. And there's this Japanese term called wabi-sabi, which means uh, something like perfect imperfection. And, and, you know, it's if you're buying handcrafts that are made in sort of the wabi-sabi form, there might be, you know, divots or bubbles you know, in the in the cups or in their bowls or their paintings might have, you know, stray marks. And it's it's really about kind of finding beauty in that and embracing that. And um, and that's what the story's about and that's what the style is. And then even, you know, on the level of the music or uh, to some extent, you know, I can even say on the level of the pacing of the edit, we were kind of looking for how do we walk this tightrope between something being really refined and well done and also something being sort of rough. So that's that's the whole mm-hmm. theme throughout, and that informed every creative decision. Oh yeah, and especially I can I can I can see that too as far as the pacing too, where you don't want to like, you know, there's times where um, um, does your character have a name or is he just like is there a, 
like do you refer to him as anything? Just uh just just the guy. Just the guy? The guy. Okay, I just wanted yeah, to make sure if he had like an official name. It doesn't even need to okay, be gender, so just the the character, the protagonist, if you will. The character, the the artiste. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> um but yeah, for your for your, like I just didn't want to like keep on calling him the guy and it be come off as disingenuous. Uh, his name's Bob, actually. Oh, yeah, okay. So, you know, just get well, it right. Do you have a preference? <laughs> yeah, Bob, Bob the uh, Bob the, the the artist, Bob the okay, the cleaner. So you know, like I guess for Bob, um, you know, you really like, and as far as the pacing, you could see that you were trying to, um, like, you know, there are points obviously where he messed up and he kind of went backwards and forwards, and you know, and like like kind of proving to your point as far as like the thesis is about, is about the creative process. Like you're like, you're never going to get it. Like it will never be perfect, even though you want it to be perfect and clean and on model. Like if that's what your goal is, like there's still going to be someone saying, Hey, fix that. Hey, do that. And at some point you just have to kind of, um, what did they call it? Like, um, what's the screenwriting term, the, the kill your babies where you just have to kill say like, you know, we can't, Kill your darlings. Yes. Yeah, you can't like you can't just nitpick and nitpick and nitpick, or else it just it's just never gonna see the light of day. So um, you know, and that's kind of the the, the blessing of a, being a YouTube content creator is you're kind of your own boss, and you can you 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 have the time to make those calls. If you don't have an executive who's like, okay, time is money, tick tick tick. So um, you know, but I know a lot of creative spaces aren't like that. Hence, you know, again, we're talking about an indie, non traditional creative space. So. But still, like, you know, just from a practicality standpoint, sometimes you just have to, you know, call it or else the thing will never get done, so. Yeah, I mean, there's there's still things uh, in this film where I watch it and, you know, it's been going to festivals, so you see it on a big screen, which is very different from editing it on a computer screen, so you see it blown up on oh, I, I can imagine, massive yeah. screen, and I'll just see things, I'm like, oh, God, I, oh, I missed that. And I kind of have to remind myself that that feeling of oh like that wasn't right is sort of what i'm telling myself to embrace through the film the mm -hmm. film in my mind is really an allegory for its own creation uh this man mm -hmm. who's obsessed perfectionistically trying to make his room perfectly clean and eventually has to learn how to embrace the mess and not just chaotically, but learn how to kind of use and control it and, and sort of love the thing that he's been trying to uh, get rid of. That process, that feeling, that journey that the character goes on, that was my journey making this movie. You know, every, every shot, there was a little bit of that arc, that journey. And I think everyone who worked on yeah. the film can kind of say that. And like you said, it, there, there, there does reach a point where you kind of go like, look, the, you have to at some point say this is what it is. And sometimes you mm -hmm. watch it and you actually, you know, I, I don't know if it's it's just the capacity for self-delusion or if it's, you know, a certain amount of awakening to the, the deeper, you know, possibility and, and, and truth of the, maybe truth is the wrong word, just the, the beauty of the thing. Sometimes there's a thing that, you know, you watch it first time and you're like, ugh, that's not right. And then three or four or five times you watch it and you go, that's actually really good. I actually really love that. <laughs> it grows on you. You kind of acquire it in a taste for things. But at the same time, that could be, you know, misleading. That can that can take you down a wrong path because you know you're not just making the thing 
for your 10th viewing of it, you know, you're making the thing for someone else's first viewing. And so you're, you, you do lose, you can acquire in a taste for something and then that can also be mis, it could lead you astray because not everyone watching it's going to watch it 10, 15 times. Um, right, so, right. So yeah, uh, I mean, have you found like in your work, uh, the, the time, like there, there's like a tension between getting something right versus getting something just done and perfection is the enemy of the good and all those sort of cliche phrases. I think, I think it just depends like for, for me, like what, how important is the project? Like we just did a, like, you know, what, like how, like, is the, is the important, is the project important as far as like, you know, calling out the mistakes of like, you know, like, you know, everyone won't stop talking about these, how, how, bastard what's the word how bastardized or that how the new live action bastardized, are just yes. bastardizing yes. yeah like uh the original source material but like yeah but like no one's really talking about it from an animator's perspective of like why you know and using you know using the 12 principles to kind of break down why it just doesn't work as well and like you know why um like you know why it's an easier sell for something like you know, Aladdin or Little Mermaid to be CGI, but, like, something where Lion King, which is, you know, like, its primary, like, artistic, like, thesis is based on it being an animated film because you have to, like, it's an emotional story and you have to read these characters, you have to read the emotions of these characters, and if you can't do that, it's gonna suck. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, sorry to curse, but we'll censor that for the educational part of my French, yeah, but... You know, so it's so it's basically doing doing projects like that versus I just did a video where we we react to like some really cringy, um, Kim Possible fan art from the internet, and like you know those kind of videos are fun, but they're not really why I make content. Like they're a fun kind of break as just kind of pointing out like all oh, the internet, you doing you, like you know people kind of exploring their own you know sexualities through whatever whatever they have access to essentially, which is you know, fine, God bless, but, you know, sometimes it makes some, some, some weird fan art for sure. <laughs> so, like, for something like that, I'm not really too, like, that, the, the thesis of that is more about the comedy of the video than anything versus, like, if, if, you know, there's a bigger goal to serve for a video about, you know, like, talking about the live action movies or talking about, like, you know, underrated Disney movies. Like, I love Treasure Planet, and I hope to keep on shining a light on it because it's amazing and beautiful. Um, you know, like, that stuff, I'm just like, okay, let's just take the time to do this right because, you know, first impressions are important. And if we're introducing a new audience member to this movie that I love forever, if we present it well, then people just by default will take it more seriously. Like, right. you know, if we put the time into it to, like, redo the the outro in the style of the like the text style, the logo style of the movie, you know, it kind of also helps people suspend their, um, their suspension of disbelief. Mm -hmm. That's the word. Um, so they're, you know, and like the comedy helps, like the comedy helps kind of break it down in a way that, um, like if people aren't really interested in animation and this kind of stuff, then they'll, they'll come to watch a funny video. So, um, at the end of the day, so, like, that's kind of why I like using comedy in my work because, you know, but, you know, it's a trick. You know, you, tr- you trick them into caring about animation. Like, that's, that's, it's, you know, it's a trap, Jan. Ah, so <laughs> the comedy um, lures them in. The animation yeah, keeps yeah, them caged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so now I'm just like, why do I care about this thing at 3 o'clock in the morning? So, and it's all about playing with expectations, too. But if yeah. you do it, like, I mean, that's a that's a very old-school Disney principle as far as, like, like a Walt Disney himself kind of principle. It's like if you just lead with really good, you know, presentation and, you know, you keep your theme park clean and you take it seriously, then people will kind of fall into line and be like, well, if they're taking, you know, um, their art seriously, if this is, like, a serious thing and not just you know, cartoon characters for the lulls, you know, um, then, then yeah, I think it will carry through. And I think that's kind of been the, unfortunately, I think that's kind of been a problem with, with Warner Brothers in general is they kind of focus too much on the comedy and not really the thesis of why they're making their stuff. Mm. And they, like, that's why Disney, I think, has dated much better than Warner Brothers because, they're, like, Warner Brothers comedy is still amazing, but, you know, people can't, resonate with the characters on a deeper level beyond the comedy if that makes sense hmm. and then in, in terms of you know animation do you feel like with warner there's less of a, a appreciation for why the content should be animated as opposed to say live action or something yeah i mean and like like i did see space i don't know if you saw space jam legacy but that, that, Is that the new one with on the, right uh, LeBron James? the new one with uh with kobe yeah, LeBron James. With LeBron James, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, LeBron James. Yes, I did see it. Yeah, so... And I'm a 90s it, I mean, kid, I reckon... so the first Space Jam was, you know, pretty paramount to my childhood. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, like, if you, like, I always tell people, if you take back the nostalgic of, this nostalgic aspect of Space Jam, it's not really a great movie. Like, they really, they really bastardize uh, Doug's, not Doug's. Doug's funny. <laughs> Doug Bug, yeah, they really, um, they really don't do him justice as far as his own characterization. So there's like little, there's little beats that um, in the the new Space Jam that tries to correct that. And if you ever want to look it up, like you know, analysis, character analysis between like contrasting is trying to make Bug more of a, 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 you know, like at the end of the day, he's like charming and you know crafty but he still has a good heart versus i don't remember off the top of my head what the problem was with the original space jam besides just him kind of what was doing it? a it's, little shame uh, things yeah the, the, so well that's fun because in the original space jam you know you have these little aliens and they steal all these nba players talent and so michael jordan has to join and they and then they challenge the looney tunes to a game and Michael Jordan has to help the Looney Tunes win so that he can get the talent back from these aliens and give them back to his friends like Charles Barkley and all these other NBA players. But what's funny, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, and you have a point, is that in the original Space Jam, in the beginning, Bugs Bunny is a total d*** to these little aliens or these little twerpy aliens. Right, right. And they right. just want to be the like the theme, Looney Tunes. You know? Like, these little aliens just love the Looney Tunes. And Bugs is a total ass to them. And totally makes them feel bad. And so that's why those little aliens go and steal the basketball player's talent. So, yeah. Hashtag the aliens should have won. Yeah, now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, man, the, Did I know, I'm the sorry aliens if I are ruined very Space Jam for you, David. Yeah, you just totally ruined it for me. This is like that video of a karate kid where, I don't know if you've seen on YouTube, some guy recut the karate kid and added commentary in order to show why the protagonist is actually the villain. And why mm-hmm. the bad guy is actually like a cool dude, and and he recuts it and he does this commentary, and you're like, oh man, I've been rooting for the wrong character this whole time. I've been watching Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. You just gave me that moment for Space Jam, I think. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, people who are listening. But anyway, um, you know, what Legacy did better was not only it did really try to make sure they had 2D animators on Legacy, which, you know, Jesus Christ. Like, they did, they did, um, they did 3D, um, like, during the, 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 the game between the other, the, the new bad guys or whatever, whatever. Um, so, like, I guess that's passable because, like, you know, there's an in-universe reason for doing that and not just doing it because, lol, money, like, they're dealing, like, um, again, I guess after this you gotta go watch Space Jam Legacy, <laughs> but they have, um, they have, like, all of the Warner Brothers IP come in, like, watch the game, including, like, Iron Giant, including all the Hanna-Barbera characters, all an- all animated in their OG styles from off the top of my head, or if they're, if they come out of their, their little po- uh, pockets of IP land, then they're CGI'd because they, because of that, and not because that's their source, their soul, or soul, um, you know, Whatever the changes thing. in aesthetic um, are narratively justified, is what you're saying, yes, right? Yes, like that's if, what I'm if they're for. if they've if they're originally a 2D character and then they come out and they're a little bit more 3D CG'd, it's there's a reason in the story for why that's the case. Mm-hmm. I need to rewatch uh, and then that legacy. <laughs> I think I watched the first half. And um, I was like, oh, I hate this. This is this is a <laughs> no, I hate this. You know, but LeBron like, James can't hold a candle like, to Michael Jordan. I'm turning it off. I don't remember though. <laughs> I mean, like, and like, you know, they can. I mean, like, just. I mean, realistically, getting Jordan back again would just be a rehash. So, like, and there's like, he has a character, like, he has a fake son, and there's a character going on with him and his son. So there's more going on than just like Michael Jordan sells tickets to go see the Space Jam movie. Woo! Um, but it does. I mean, you know, regardless, it still has a kick soundtrack. You know, like. <laughs> um. But anyway, um, yeah, so all the Warner Brothers IP income and, you know, um, and then at the end, too, like, they, they, they actually, they're, they're closing um, bits, uh, not bits, uh, beats for Space Jam 2, Electric Boogaloo. They're all, when they go back into their own, like, uh, pockets, then they're back in 2D animation, which is, like, Jeff Kiss. Good job, guys. That was the, that was the correct call. Um, so, but, so really you know, in general, to the origins of these characters and their Yeah, and, like, styles. getting Bugs care, like, I think there was, I'm gonna ruin Space Jam for you more, but I think, um, there was a moment where, um, Chuck, uh, who's the famous, like, the most famous, um, Warner Brothers animator, Chuck Norris, I think. No, that's not, that's Chuck Jones. Chuck Jones, I think. You know, Chuck Norris um, never ceases to amaze me in terms of his breadth of talent. He can roundhouse kick and he can animate for Warner. I mean, he he's uh, unstoppable. Norris. Chuck Norris is, is the, hashtag Chuck Norris is the best animator. Um, but Chuck Jones, he, um, he's most famous for doing Chuck Norris doesn't uh, animate. TV. Animation makes, no, I tried to make a Chuck Norris joke of. Uh, but it's bit, okay. That, that fell. It's okay. We'll get. Hopefully, we'll get some fun memes from this podcast where go. Chuck, Chuck, you know, sure. animated. Anyway, Chuck. anyway, animated Chuck, the OG Chuck. Um, so there was a premiere party uh, for Space Jam, and he's like the thesis of why Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse work at the end of the day is they're 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 both characters that root for that that are rooting for the underdog that are helping helping the little guy out. And, you know, Mickey does it with his genuineness and Bugs does it through his comedy. Um, and so, um, so anyway, uh, Chuck goes to the premiere of the Space Jam and he's kind of frustrated that they kind of f***ed up Bugs's 
character, which they 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 did. They totally did. It's it's right there. Don't you see it? You know, '90s kids. Um, and then he he's kind of salty at the at this premiere party, and they basically he just kind of leaves in a huff because he's just like, "Hey guys, this is not how you do bugs." And um, then they um, they're just like, "Whatever, the movie's out. Go home, Chuck." You know, okay, boomer. And I'm just like, no, but he's right. But he's right. He's right there. He's right. Poor, poor Chuck. So, um, you know, um, so I'm glad they, like, you know, they took, they just didn't go in with the nostalgia bank buck, you know, at the end of the day with Legacy. They just, they went in with a lot of practical, like, okay, you know, this movie it's not that good, but people seem to like it. How can we twist that nostalgia into something that's more meaningful than just, you know, getting Bugs Bunny back into a basketball uniform and making money off those toys? So, you know, yeah. that's why I respect it. All right, fair enough. Maybe I'll have to give it a second chance. I bet you didn't think we were going to talk about Space Jam no, on the No, podcast. look, I'm going with the flow of the conversation. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, the other thing that's amazing about Space Jam is the integration of the live action with the animation, which, mm-hmm. you know, I've done live action, and I've mostly done live action, and this was my first and only animated project, but I certainly want to do more animation because I really enjoyed the process of it, namely that I can do it remotely, which means I was able to work in my pajamas. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um, you and me both, Fran. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hard to hard to show up to work in pajamas on a live action film set, but in animation. I mean, you can. It's you, know, you just you just can't be the actor who's doing it. You know. I yes. Yeah, so, well, I don't think I've, I've achieved that. You know, I would like my goal is to achieve a certain level of status as a film director where I can show up in in uh, in PJs and no one cares. They just say that it's part of my creative eccentric genius. No, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, animation was... Don't you know who I am? <laughs> yes, I get to wear whatever I... No, but, um, yeah, no, the animation process is is, is really good. I, I forget what I was going to say with that. But, but um, yeah, oh, well, with, with Space Jam, you know, that integration of live action and animation is really, really interesting. It's, it's interesting for the actors because they're talking on just air and having to pretend like there's a thing there. And then it's got to be interesting for the animators to figure out how to work their magic into a pre-existing frame you know whereas when you're doing mm-hmm. pure animation it's a blank page and everything goes from the ground up which is one of the things i love about animation is it's really a purely creative art form it's there, there's no mm-hmm. accidental starbucks cup that makes its way into the frame <laughs> you know cough cough game of thrones with animation, everything that's in that frame is a choice. Every line, uh, including the Little Mermaid cover that has a piece on the trident. You know, some bored animator was like, I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Is that, that's a real thing, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking some about. Just like, bored animator see if no one like, will notice. I'm not getting paid enough to not do this joke. That will be hilarious to me and my friends for the rest of time. Um, but that was a choice, you know, every single thing in a purely animated film in a purely animated frame is chosen by the director and the animators. And with Space Jam, the integration of the live action and the, and the animation, it's it kind of, it, it, it blends the two mediums in a way that's, that's kind of interesting. And you, I feel like maybe you have the best of both worlds or maybe the worst of both worlds, but um, yeah, yeah, I will say before we move on, um, if you guys are interested in this conversation, um, I'll just I'll just leave it at this before it turns into another three hour conversation. But um, 
go see Roger Rabbit if you're interested in 2D uh, live action uh, blending because that Richard Williams is like the master of Who that and Roger it's Rabbit? much better than yeah oh, he framed Roger yeah. Rabbit classic. the OG classic yeah so like if you're interested in like just studying the technique of that then um, I haven't double checked I haven't cross checked footage but off the top of my head then you know Richard Williams kind of having direct more directorial control over you know, Roger Rabbit than I assume Space Jam did is probably makes for a better, you know, just everything. I really wish Roger would get some more limelight these days. Uh, he, yeah, he deserves he's, it. He's a good bean. He's really so. sort of fallen to the wayside in the public consciousness, huh? Like, people don't talk about that movie. Yeah, that well, such a cool we got to fix that, the industry. we gotta get, we got to get on that. Here, um. <laughs> question in terms of blending live action and animation, a little bit of a tangent, but do you think that rotoscoped pictures such as a Scanner Darkly or Apollo 10 and a half link ladder films. Uh, do you think that qualifies as animation or is that live action? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, we're talking about how, you know, directorial intent and stuff like that as far as, you know, um, things on frame. And I feel like by, do, by rotoscoping, it kind of leans towards the lather of just kind of happy accidents a little vibe. And... You know, that's that's not the point of animation, you know, like so it's if it's an artistic choice on purpose, like, you know, or it's there's some kind of deeper meaning while you're rotoscoping than just because it's easy. So if for, for the layman's out there, for the for the for the, the Gentiles out there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I, I saw in your bio you you were Jewish too. So I, I am, I, I am a Chinese there, but, <laughs> so for the for the for the for the normies out there, um, rotoscoping is basically taking live action footage and tracing the frames, and uh, that is technically faster. And then you don't have to worry about it being accurate because it's you know it's live action, um, you know, you know it's live action. It's like it's it's perfect because it's already you know taken from live action. But traditionally, um, animators use reference footage where they use it as a reference to inform like the performance to make sure it's it's you know. Perform, like you know it gets the emotional and emotions and the character and all that stuff across but um you know it's like it i feel like some of that stuff is lost when you rotoscope again unless you're rot rotoscoping for a narrative reason or there's some kind of bigger picture of why you're rotoscoping i'm looking at you uh rick and Basque. i know that for apollo 10 and a half richard linklater's last film there was kind of an argument with the academy as to whether or not it could be nominated for best animated feature and at first the academy was saying no you know rotoscope isn't really animation and then they changed their tune they said okay yes we will allow apollo 10 and a half to be submitted as an animated feature uh and then it didn't even really get nominated so but but the, yeah this yeah it's kind of interesting well you know all right i'll, I'll tie this back into me and my <laughs> project uh with the got it got it got a hustle boy <laughs> there was yeah self-promotion no, but with the cocoon, my short, there was a period where uh, I thought about doing it live action, and um, basically production had stopped. There was kind of a personal issue with uh, the lead animator, and, and he kind of had to go off and, and handle some business, and and so we weren't we weren't working on it for like six months, and um, and so I was like, ah, what do I do? You know, what if I try shooting this as a live action? Like, what would that be like? And there's moments in the film. Spoilers where, you know, the, ca the characters walking on walls and walking on the ceiling. Like, how do we do this live action and how do we cheat it? And, 
you know, we, we built a lamp that came from the floor and, and went up with a stiff cord, but we, it's, it, if you turn the camera upside down, it looks like it's hanging from the ceiling when really it's protruding up from the floor. And, um, and we realized, it was just like, man, this just does, this, this story needs to be animated. But we ended up using a lot of that footage as reference for the animators, in addition to our animatic and our storyboards, so that mm. the animator can reference the facial expressions. Yeah. And, you know, the framing. And so, you know, as distinct as live action filmmaking is from animation, there's still a lot of crossover, still a lot of the same principles. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying in the very beginning of the of this podcast um, about, you know, kind of the fundamentals of animation. And there is still, fundamentally, what you're doing is you're rendering uh, space in two dimensions within a particular sized frame and using movement and using lighting and shadowing in order to create the illusion of a character going through time and to tell a story mm -hmm. that way. And regardless of whether you're doing that in animation or live action, it's sort of the same principles of framing and angles and, you know, in, in animation you have, we, you know, we would constantly refer to like where the quote unquote camera is, even though there's no camera. Mm -hmm. The metaphorical so, camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say, oh yeah, can you you know lower the camera if we wanted a lower angle or something like that? And we were just kind of saying that as like you know it, it, just an offhand or just a quick kind of you know what I mean sort of phrase, even though there's there's no actual camera. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was curious. What, what do you think about that? About you know sort of. Um. Yeah. Like I guess. Well. Well, that did answer my question because I could tell you use reference, but I could tell it was also not rotoscope. So like now I get the story of why, like how specifically you got your reference footage. Um. I didn't know there was a story about behind it, but that's cool. Um. But. Um. Yeah. I guess just kind of to backtrack, like as far as the rotoscoping thing, I think like the rotoscoping also just doesn't show a sense of artistry. Like if that, if we want to get really deep about it, because you're basically you're turning your brain off and doing and you're tracing something that's already pre-made. So I think, you know, the only way I could see a rotoscoped piece again being taken seriously is if a it was some kind of narrative importance on top of there being non-rotoscoped good animation in in maybe in the middle and the end and the rotoscope being in the sandwich in the middle somewhere. I could see that. But any other thing it's just like, you know, if you just if you're just going to rotoscope then just scope shoot live action like there's not really you know there's unless you're practicing you know if you're practicing proportions you're practicing how to use frame rate you're practicing like you know god bless as long as you don't post it anywhere as long as you don't say oh this is this is mine that i made from scratch then that's fine you know everyone needs to practice everyone needs to you know learn how the process works because that's you know that's part of the that's part of the journey but um, okay, I have some. I have a couple more questions. Well, b before um, before yeah. that, I, I think you should talk to a rotoscope artist. I'd be curious. You should have an episode with that if you want. I'd yeah, be I, I gotta to kinda, maybe find one because <laughs> you might find. I don't know. I'd, be, I, I'd imagine that there's still a lot of stylistic choices that need to be made, layering over the live action footage. I, I, I don't know if they're gonna come on the show if I after all that shade. I, threw, <laughs> I know. But, well, know. maybe maybe you know that would be an opportunity for them to prove themselves. You know, you've goaded them a little bit. Yeah, it's a challenge. Challenge. That's that's for sure, you know. Um, but but as you know, like you know, um, creators in the professional like space, like as well as personalities, are kind of rare anyway. So um, I feel like if I were to try to find a rotoscope artist, I'd really have to, to to look for them, which is something I'm not willing to do. But or um, something I could do, but it's just like 
it's a lot of it's a lot of leg work, like realistically. All right. But anyway, right. and well, then if the, who knows? Yeah, I think I think it'd be interesting. I would love to do some. All right. Well, if you stuff. hey, if you if you if connections, if you oh, if you know anyone that's willing I... to defend their 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 tribe or whatever, then hit me up later. Okay. Sure, sure. Hey, look, I don't have too much of a dog in this fight, but um, <laughs> I mean, I'd just be kind of curious to to hear that perspective. Uh, but anyway, all, uh, yeah, we're, we're, all good fans. So, um, from a practicality standpoint, I have a couple more questions. But from a practicality standpoint, you mentioned that your background is in live actions. So, like, how did you? And and all of this was kind of a learning curve from a directorial point. So, like, you know, in general, if a director is directing animation, you know, and they um, they don't know about the process, and they should learn a little bit about the process. John Favio, you know, just say well. I don't know how much of The Lion King was John Favio's just ignorance as far as how animation is convincing or an executive over his shoulder saying, like, this is what the kids want. You know, we got to just do the best we can. And right. It's what the kids want. You know, well, he had so done I don't wanna... Jungle Book before then and did, a, I yeah, think, and... a pretty good job with that. Um, but Jungle Book has people in it, David. Right. No, I, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I do think. Well, I actually haven't seen the live-action Lion King. I've kind of decided not to see most. I haven't seen the live-action Aladdin. Probably a good choice. Yeah. Like, my, my MO is just, like, if there's people... Like, there's no... The Lion King is just... There's no point. They, they do shop-for-shot shot references. So, like, if you're curious... If you're curious about it from that perspective of how, like, how to make it... How to take the Lion King and make it more shitty, then <laughs> sure, go ahead. Just don't spend money on it. But um, like any of the live action stuff um, that with 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 that have weird w- real people that requires more creative decisions than just make this thing, but in CGI, then those are worth a study. So I'd say like Aladdin. I enjoyed Aladdin. You know, keeping in mind like none of these can hold the candle to the original, um, obviously. But you know, Will Smith Aladdin was fine. Um, Jungle Book, like you said, was 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 good. You know, um, that was for what one of the was. few ones that um, I saw. Yeah, so, you know, and that's why I'm kind of like, if you're going to, guys, yo, yo, Disney, look, look, fam, like, let, let's sit down. Like, if you're going to do this, then, like, let's shine a light on, like, the not the A-list movies, please. Like, let's do Atlantis or Treasure Planet or someone who would actually benefit from the spotlight and not, you know, 10,000 Little Mermaid songs so you can, re- you can just renew your, 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 your IP and the song licenses. Come on, guys, I see you. I see you there. I know what's going on. Yeah, so to you, it feels like a cash grab. Yeah. So, and I think that's, I mean, and like, that's the general consensus. It's a cash grab, but it's still making money. So, like, if, if people really are upset about this, then they should just stop seeing them or at least wait till Disney, they're on Disney Plus so they're not spent, they're not using their money to support this. Because if, you know, that's how, that's how capitalism works, guys. If you throw money at the thing and it makes money, they're just going to keep on making more of them. So, right. like, if well, you don't want more of them, then just don't stop throwing your money at it, guys. It's not complicated. It begs an interesting question of, you know, if it's a cash grab and, like you said, in our you know system, what makes money is what people are willing to pay for. And so they, it, it begs the question, why are so many people willing to pay for it? Why is it such a good cash grab? And... I think... Go ahead. Well, I have, I have some theory. I mean, I think... Sure, sure, go for it. We, we're living in weird, chaotic times of flux, and I think people want a sense of familiarity and certainty, but everyone still craves novelty and variety. Like, those two conflicting forces 
those two conflicting desires, familiarity on the one hand, novelty on the other hand, exists with everyone. And I think both of those urges are kind of satisfied by sequels, prequels, uh, known IP, remakes, reboots. Mm-hmm. Like It's like, oh, here's these characters you know and love. Here's the story you know and love. But we're going to show it to you in a slightly different way. We're going to give you the next chapter. We're going to give you shot for shot, but CGI. And I think right. it's playing on the, like these these contradictory heartstrings that we all have. And I, I just... I kind of it, it saddens me because I wish there was more of an appetite um, for something that's just like whoa, where did this come from? This does not seem like anything I have a reference point for. But but right. then again, you are seeing. I mean, you're seeing a lot of really interesting, bold, original stuff coming. I mean, I think what the Spider-Man, the Lord and Miller Spider-Man yeah, stuff has done. Spider-Man play, you get that. Yeah, I think Spider-Man. what it's done aesthetically. I mean, it took this kind of interesting comic book aesthetic, but but superimposed it on um it's like kind of 3d it feels a little it's just the style so interesting and it pays a great amount of homage to the comic book source material and the style of of comic books but also recognizes its place as you know a 3d animated film and i think what they did was really cool and i would you know I, i hope that more uh animated films um take a tip from that and say you know like let's make some bold interesting aesthetic choices you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and and then like to to your point wrapping into your thing is like, you know, even if you're not traditionally an animator, you still have to respect the art and not think it's for little kids or whatever boomer mindset you have because you know who had that anti-boomer mindset? Like Walt Disney himself and look at this 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 juggernaut that he created that's funding your nostalgia and like, you know, helping all these make-a-wish kids and like you know, there's there's kind of there's been mistakes in the company, both morally and you know sometimes with this live action bullshit. But like, I like to think in general it's still a big good. You know, it still does good. It still donates a lot of money to charity. It still helps people feel like they're seen and that you know an environment that they feel comfortable with. Like that's what Disney World is, so or Disneyland or whatever. So um, well, and these stories you know, are also why, pretty like, wonderful. Right, and um, I guess on that point too, like there's a like. Like, like the morality of Disney, you know, we just, my mom and I, when we, we just came back from a Disney World trip and my mom was like, let's go to SeaWorld. And I'm like, no. Like, and she's like, why do you want to go to SeaWorld? And I'm like, no. And then I showed her, um, I've never seen the whole thing, but I've seen clips of it. But I showed her Blackfish, which is a documentary about how horribly they treat the, the animals in SeaWorld oh, like and orcas. how they basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah highly yeah. recommend right. friend. It's, 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 it's great investigative journalism turned documentary storytelling um but like there's basically not well you know they were all going through psychosis and it was just like well you know we could do what's best for the animal but money i'm just like no so um so um and it's free on youtube with ads well no animals were harmed in the making of little mermaid as far as i know yeah, no maybe Sebastian had a little bit of a uh, have a had a little bit of a heart attack, but he he was okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did they do to Flounder though? I've seen pictures. I haven't gone to see the movie, but I heard they butchered Flounder. Ah, uh, Flounder more looks more like a realistic fish. Like, we, funny you mentioned that. I, we made a joke about that in uh, one of the recent videos. But he just looks like a realistic fish, which has the same problems that we've been talking about. Has as far as like 
you know, you can't really read his uh, facial expressions because he's a realistic fish. <laughs> so, but does Ursula? I get. No. I haven't seen it. Is Ursula like a a lady puss, a lady octopus? Yeah. Okay, so they're fine with yeah, that. Yeah, but They can't make a fish that looks a little bit humanoidy. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, this is this is what I mean of like having someone who was like cat. Animators should be in charge of making animated films, or at least like know enough to like not make like. I mean, like fish flounder, I feel like was not the not the correct call for sure. But I think too, like to be fair, then sometimes they're afraid of getting into Uncanny Valley vibes, which is fair. But I think also like they made it worse by buckling down on like um, unrealistic fish flounder. Yes, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure. I'm sympathetic to these choices that these directors have to make because I'm not sure how I would have done it if I was in charge of adapting the Little Mermaid, but. uh, but um, anyway, but the, the animation is just, that's why I, I kind of have been like, I don't know if I want to see these live action remakes, because I like just what the animations are in my head. And yeah, um, but yeah, to your point, like as far as just comfort food and, you know, the McDonald's of movies, essentially, like people want to, like it, it's, it's easier, like psychologically, it's easier for people. Like that's why fan fiction is such a big thing because you know what you're getting yourself into because you're already invested into these characters. So sequels and prequels are all, are all the same way, but it's more of a finding natural beats in these source material that don't feel like they um, force a story out of nothing. Like uh, my go-to example of that is Lion King Two: Electric Boogaloo, where. Um, you know, it's there's still good beats in there somewhere, but just the general plot of like there being a, a lady lion that had no bearing on the original plot come out of nowhere and say like it's it's very fan fictiony as far like in a bad way of like inventing a plot out of nothing for the sake of having a movie, and that's not how you should make movies. Like you know, you should like if you're gonna make a Lion King prequel or a sequel or whatever, then find natural beats in the original source material and explore them in a way that's organic because that that's what makes the best stories um and that's what makes you feel like sequels are worth worth people's time you know because you're te- you're expanding on something that's meaningful that's already meaningful to people instead of just like inventing a story from scratch to make that bank so you know i'm glad i'm glad they like you know some of these like disney sequels like most like most of them suck like bluntly most of them suck but there's some that don't like i you know um like my favorite one, the one that I think is over underrated for sure is uh, Bambi Two, which I don't think it should have been called Bambi Two, but <laughs> it it's kind of what it talks. About. Have you seen seen Bambi Two? No, no, I'm just thinking about okay, what possible so, titles there could be. Yeah, uh, Bambi like Reloaded, Bambi, like King of the Forest, or something. Something that's kind of like it's not really it's a it's a midquel, so it's not really a two. It's like a it's like a in the in the middle. Does like Bambi so, go nuts um, and like uh, exact revenge? On Bambi the goes to college, killing his mom, and you know go John Wick on it. That would be that would be a good. <laughs> they should do that. I think they made an SNL skit out of that actually with The Rock. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but no. Um, so I, I I assume I assume you've seen the original Bambi, right, David? Yeah, We're yeah. Not I, uh, well, you haven't seen original you know, Bambi, I've, right? I've, I've repressed the memory of it because it's so devastating. I mean, that movie has been okay. Kids as up long for, as you've seen it, decades. as long as you've seen it. Okay, so basically, for those who um, haven't seen Bambi in a hot second and only remember that one scene the one time, which is that, that's called emotional manipulation. Good job, Walt Disney. But anyway, um, uh, so like. Bambi's 
father because it's nature and he's not really involved in the process of raising, you know, because your culture, it's always the mother and the father, like, you know, inseminates the, 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 the female deer and that's kind of really it. Um, so there's just kind of the implication of Bambi having a bigger destiny because he's like, like, that's the main you know, his father is the main one, but we kind of just see him, like, in the distance, like, in the fog, you know, like, um, Bambi's been described as Lion King, but without a, a plot, where it's, it's like, it has the emotional beats, but the characters themselves aren't as fleshed out as they could be, so, like, it's a movie that couldn't really exist today because of that, because it's just kind of like a chill movie, like a very, um, Miyazaki movie on top of that, which, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with Miyazaki, but like, obviously, but it's very much like you kind of had to be there for it to really make that impact of you compared to media that's coming out now. Um, so, but yeah, Bambi 2 essentially is about Bambi's father realizing that his mother has died and him kind of trying to come to terms with how he's going to be involved in his in this in this child's life if he wants to at all and he's played by Patrick Stewart Bambi dad is played by Patrick Stewart good casting very good casting wow um and yeah like let me, let, I'm not even done yet let me finish all so right, the whole go, movie go, go. is about <laughs> like him warming up to the idea of being a parental figure to Bambi when he doesn't have one anymore, when he's all alone. And, like, near the end, um, you know, there, he has a, a decision to kind of let him go off to be with another, like, a substitute mom, essentially, a, a foster mom. And and um, Bambi gets in trouble, and Bambi dad comes in and saves the day, and realize, and that's, that's he has a whole, char- he has a whole character arc. And Bambi, too, Electric Boogaloo. Like from a character that basically was a stand-in for like like just an idea of of greatness, but like wasn't an actual character. Similar note with Mufasa. We need some backs. Like I really like the the beat, like this beat idea for the Ooh. prequel of having a star Mufasa backstory. But yeah. like, don't do it with the live action universe. Like just get the OG cast and put it on fucking Disney Plus. I'm sure the kids would love it. A so prequel um, with Mufasa and Scar would be fascinating. Yeah, because there's already those beats in there. Like that's what we talked about as far as yes. finding those natural beats. Like yeah, there's you know, so and Lion... much implied, but not yeah. Told. And Lion Guard kind of has that. Um, Lion Guard's a show that they made um, that sucks pretty. Much. It's not that good. Um, it's it. They kind of just really missed the ball with like exploring the the Lion King universe, um, but. And they kind of have some bad takes on some bad reads on a lot of different things. So it's it's. However, with yeah. regard to prequels uh-huh. and reboots, and and I think you know part of the reason why I have, you know, it hasn't been like a you know I'm never seeing a live action remake, but I've sort of abstained from it is, is because I, I almost don't want it to taint my feeling about the original, and I guess. My question is, do you feel like doing prequels and kind of, you know, exploring these other beats? On the one hand, it's like, oh, this is cool because you get to flesh out this world of characters and, and, and story that, you know, we know and love. On the other hand, do you feel like it can taint your feeling of the original? Like, when you go and watch Star Wars A New Hope, having now seen the Kenobi limited series on Disney+, Plus. Is your viewing mm-hmm. of Star Wars A New Hope different because you now have all this Kenobi shit in the back of your head? 
And if you didn't like the Kenobi series, you know? So sometimes I'm but like, the, the, do we just leave it alone? Do we just leave the stuff alone? Let's create new just... sh Or do we go like, you don't know, no, it's, there's, there's, there's intrigue and there's stuff, more story to be told. Let's do that. And if you don't like it, I then whatever. I feel you, man. I feel you. Well, there's a question think... there. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I do have an answer to that question. I think something that the expansion of the, like, Obi-Wan's a great example of this, but the expansion of the Star Wars universe that was done right is that they found a, a, a beautiful balance of honor. I mean, except for like the last Jedi, we, we won't talk about that, but like for clone Wars stuff, like animated clone Wars stuff, like, you know, Mandalorian stuff for the most part, um, they found a beautiful balance of honoring both source material, but also recontextualizing OG lore to have a deeper meaning. And Obi-Wan, I feel like is the pinnacle of that. Like I Adored Obi Wan. It was a great. It was an amazing story. And like you know, because you know, the prequels have changed from being kind of ew prequels. Like George Lucas, what are you doing? Like, to, are you trying to sell these these things to kids too? Like a very nostalgic, personal like experience yeah, to people. They've aged and well. So, those prequels. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's. And I think I I hate to say it, but I think the Last Jedi is going to age well too because that understanding of Luke's character will also be carried with people's recontextualization of Luke. And because they're not tied with Luke being the hero that he he was, or he he, he was um, mythologically destined to be, he was just kind of this flawed guy. Like, I think it, would, it could have been a great story if people just didn't have this emotional baggage with Luke, essentially. If it was, it, yeah. you know, it, it would have been a great original story. Um but that being said, um, so, you know, like, and that's why Star Wars is in the golden age it, it, it is in, is it's because, you know, again, for the most part, I don't say as, uh, as current as I should, but they find a very beautiful balance of, you know, honoring the past, but also adding more meaning to the future. And like, you know, like Obi-Wan's arc is beautiful. And, you know, it's like, because you, you, you know, there's a beat between him going from, like, there's trauma there, you know, of him desperately trying to save Anakin to, like, well, you know, I can't, I'm just kind of done, like, the how he was in New Hope, if you if you compare the two. So, like, having a story there, kind of having him go through that character arc, you know, is was a great, you know, was a great idea. 10 out of 10. And I'm glad it, it I'm glad it came out in the Disney Plus era because they had more time to tell it versus just trying to fit it all into a two-hour movie. You know, they had space. So, to make it a miniseries. So, um, thanks... Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. No, um, yeah, I, and I, I, I somewhat agree with you, but there's... Mo like, I watched New Hope not too long ago, and the moment when Obi-Wan has the duel with Darth Vader, and Darth Vader says, last time we met, uh, you know, I was the student, but, but now I am the master. Something, I just butchered the line. I'm like, oh, knowing that, that about that fight they had uh, in Kenobi, that finale, I'm like, oh, that, that line means something new now. And I actually liked mm -hmm. that new meaning because I'm like, oh, like, okay, this is cooler. But right, then right. when and that's, uh, Kenobi I'm... dies and Leia's like, oh, Luke, I'm so sorry. I'm like, wait, hold on. Luke's known him for like, Luke's been tight with him for like a day. And and yeah. Leia just, Leia had this, now I'm like, I know Leia had this whole like journey with Kenobi and like, how come she's not more distraught? That does, now all of a sudden that doesn't quite make as much sense. So I feel like the Kenobi series, it kind of 
man, wow, we're really branching out all over the place, huh? Um, uh, well, yeah, like you, I, I had a feeling I'm just like, oh, they, they don't know. Like, I know my, I know my, 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 my twelve, my nine old men, do they? <laughs> PR lady. Um, so, um, but no, but yeah. But yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I agree with what you said. I think there's, there, it depends on the moment. Like if watching, like go watch a New Hope again, and, and there's gonna be moments where you're like, oh, I feel differently about this because of having seen Kenobi now. And some of those moments might be for the better, but some might not be. I don't know. And then, like, to your point, as far as the Princess Leia read, you can read that as, like, because there's, there's also the other beat as far as, like, why, like, why did why did Leia, Leia name her son Ben? Like, they didn't seem like they, they were that tight, you know. Um, so that also satisfies that, checks that off the list, too, because they of that relationship they developed in Obi-Wan. I don't know if you realize that, but uh, there you go. Yeah, I didn't think uh, about Mary that. Christmas. Yeah, yeah so... Postmortem of all of the of all of the original three films and and kind of say like, this this now relates to Kenobi in this way or kind of connect the lore mm-hmm. a little more that might be fun to do. Yeah, so I guess to to the read as far as um, that read as far as Leia, like you know, I, yes, I agree, but I think Leia probably like, and I think again that's um, that um, that's something that can be. Um, explained justified. explained explored again the natural beat but you know like from right now i think we can pull it, uh we can chop it off uh, chop it up to you know she's a princess and she's trying to be empathetic to luke because even though they didn't know each other for they only knew each other for a day she was trying to he he he's the the mentor that he needed at that time that he's finally like, finally i have my shit together oh wait never mind and she's kind of putting back her own baggage to kind of be there for Luke and be empathetic for Luke. So that's kind of my read. That's a nice read. If I was Leia, I'd be like, Mother, you don't even know him. When I was a kid. He's a princess, I'd be like, Luke, if, when I was a kid, the shit that me and Kenobi went through, you have no idea. We went through a lot together. <laughs> he means way more to me than you. Stop crying. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, no, it's you're right. It's it's, it's funny <laughs> if you don't like if, you know if you like that's the thing about like having reads that are not empathetic, but you know no, no, it's yes, because yeah. you can throw them into a story into something that's more meaningful than just like oh they f-ed up they didn't read they their homework you know the writer they, f-ed up yeah it, so it it depends on how charitable you're feeling. I think maybe when I was watching that moment, I was not feeling particularly charitable, <laughs> but um, I feel. For sure. Yeah. All right. Um, like back on topic, I only have a couple more questions left. Sure. So, sure, um, sure. so how did you? Um, so as far as doing independent stuff, because independent stuff is very much about like you know having people take you seriously, especially if they're going to animate for you. I assume for free. I don't know. I don't know. You know, if you funded this on your own dime or whatever the like whatever it was. But how did you kind of go about building your creative team? Like. Did you use your background as a like a live action director to kind of give yourself some, what is it word? What's the word? Um, not clout isn't the right word. Kind of, um, you know, authority um, or why? Sh- like why respectability? Should anyone... yes. um, you know, like you know, taking your craft seriously. You know, like that. I can't think of the exact word. Credible. Yeah. There yeah. What gave me credibility? Um, well. We did pay our animators, and, and this was self-funded. I dropped out of USC film school. I was getting my MFA at their screenwriting program, and I decided that the money that was being spent per semester on grad school would be better spent making my own projects. Um, 
So there's a little bit of a opportunity cost trade off there. And I, I sacrificed film school in order to just go make stuff. And I think going and making stuff is the best film school you'll ever get. Um, yeah, so agree, part of it was what gave me credibility was I paid you. But uh, yeah. but that's not actually... I mean, that's what know, it, sometimes that's what it is at the end of the day. You that know? will motivate people. But I think what... One, you know, you have to know the material better than anyone else. And as the director, your job is really to have a vision. Being a director is like you're being asked 50 times a day, do I look ugly in this dress? And your job is to make the people you're working with feel gorgeous and get them to change their dress at the same time. And that comes from having a clear vision and really understanding the source material. Having said that, there was plenty of moments during the making of this where, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. And sometimes I handled that with a little bit of overcompensating bravado. And I'm sure that was very transparent. And then there's other times where I was like, well, what do you think? And how, how's the best way? And someone we brought on the team who is the most experienced in terms of animation was Ernesto Matamoros, and he's a really brilliant editor and just really brilliant storyteller and has such a, a wonderful sense of animation and a wonderful sense of narrative and a wonderful sense of you know the acting and, and all these things. And he really helped. I gave him a, a co-director credit for the storyboards because he was just so instrumental in, in crafting. And so, well, to backtrack a little bit, I had partnered with my good friend Andrew Cohen, who's, who was in the you know, beginnings of starting his... Uh, his animation studio, Confidential Cartoons, and they've since done a ton of stuff. They've done music videos for Maroon 5 and Gorillaz. I mean, really awesome work. But when he and I started working together, you know, we were both quite green in the animation field. And so uh, there was a lot of mistakes. Uh, not to interrupt, but question. He's the co-owner yeah. of the PR firm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yeah, know, okay. I remember that talents, kind of vaguely. But yeah. So continue. yeah, he's the co owner of Impact Twenty Four, which helped set up this this meeting and, and you know, Yay. was the producer. Connections, connections, connections. Yes, plugging. Uh, if anyone's, you know, behind the scenes talent, um, below the line talent and any of that, Impact Twenty Four represents them and does a really great job. Uh, but Andrew Cohen also is a really terrific producer and uh, he always loved animation. He knew he wanted to get into it and started the studio. But, you know, he and I both were pretty green uh, when it came to doing animation stuff. And so we did, you know, a pass of storyboards. And um, we brought on Ernesto, who's a m much more of a veteran, much more experienced. And he pointed out tons of mistakes and really enlightened me to the animation process. Um, and so, anyway, to answer your question, part of what gave me credibility was partnering with people who had a lot of experience and who themselves had a lot of credibility. And, you know, someone like Ernesto was so helpful, uh, not only as a collaborator, but, but kind of sort of like as like a, a consultant in, in a lot of parts of the process as a mentor for me, showing me how a lot of things are done, explaining a lot of things for me. Um, and and, um, then, and then I do, I do I do have a follow-up yeah. question, not to interrupt. Sure, sure, is, sure. is is Andrew an animator himself, or is he just kind of an admirer um, guy? He's more admirer. I mean, he's directed some stuff. So he's directed the, I think he directed the Gorillaz music video. Um, okay. And uh, in terms of actual drawing, I don't, I'm not sure. What okay, yeah, is, if, if he's a draftsman or not, I guess is my question. Yes. So. I'm actually a quite good artist, but when it comes to, you know, doing the sheer arduous labor and volume of frames, uh, that's where my bandwidth, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, you have out. to kind of 
that's why you have to make a team because you can't, you know, no one man is yes. an island, so. Yes. Um, but so anyway, uh, and also I had written the script, so kind of, you know, I think if I had just come on as a director without much, uh, you know, prior experience in animation and it wasn't even my script, that might not have made me as credible. But think, I think because it was my script and, you know, people seemed to really resonate with the script and really like the story and the vision was, was clearly written on the page, that lent me some credibility. Because it was like, okay, this guy, can, this guy has something to say. And it's, you know, not, not, not only is, I hope the animation is kind of cool to watch, but the thing that is, I, I think, the best about it and that I've, I've received the most uh, applause for when we've been doing the festival circuit is the story. Um, we won Best Animated Short Film at Arizona International Film Festival, and, and we were up against really amazing films. There's a Sundance official selected short film in there, and just the quality of animation uh, for the other shorts that were in that programming block were really stellar. But when I, I think the reason why we won Best Animated Short at that festival uh, is because there was real substance to the story. And people were coming up to me after that screening, and they, they were telling me how much it resonated with them. And, you know, it's this short that has no dialogue whatsoever. And on some level, it's just sort of the simple, silly, banal conflict of a man trying to mop a room. That's it. But the resonance, the emotional weight that that challenge is given, the meaning that that challenge has to the character, uh, I, I, it seems like it was conveyed pretty well, and I can take some credit for that, but a lot of that you know, is, is the animators as well, but it was really baked into the script. And so being able to come to my team and like I wrote that script and you know, here's the story, and everyone understood that this was a story-forward project, that gave me some credibility, but maybe I'm just blown. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, maybe I mean you should talk to the other animators. They might be like, "Oh no, he had no credibility. We we did not want to listen to a thing he said." That's hey, possible. I like money and I like drawing for money. So at the end of the day, yeah, they're like, "I don't. This guy is terrible. I never want to work for this director again." No, uh, I I hope everyone had a good time with it, and um, I really adore our team, and and I I you know it became, it, the amount of back and forth and the amount of time, uh, you spend with your animators when you're directing the thing, you know you kind of have to, I mean I guess you either end up hating each other or loving each other, but I really I really loved working with Andres, our lead animator especially, and, and he and I had so much, um, so much back and forth and so much collaboration, so many of the greatest moments in the film came from you know me trusting him to you know come forward with idea and really me encouraging him to say like you know like hey put your best foot forward and that's another thing about maybe uh what was wonderful about working on this and why i think i hope that the people working on it enjoyed um was i just encourage people to bring their best ideas forward and if it's good it'll you know the buck stops with me ultimately in terms of making the decision about whether or not it's going to be in the film but if it's a good idea i recognize it and I, I try and encourage that in people um, to just bring the best ideas forward. Because then they're, as the director, they're kind of doing your job for you. They're, like, if you can make people, if you should, I, when I started directing, I kind of came in being like, I need to be brilliant. I need to be great. I need to prove how amazing I am as, a, as an artist. And the more I direct, the more little projects I get my, my hands on, the more I, I get experience, the more I realize like, 
a lot of directing is about letting other people be brilliant. And yeah, yeah, and like you can't. That's possible. I mean, coming from the YouTube space, you get a lot of content creators who are making content for 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 self validation, and dad didn't love them, and they pretend like that people can't see them, but like I can see it from a mile and a half away, and I. I feel bad for them because they're addicted to making content because they're addicted to the validation because they, you know, they that's they they need that to feel good about themselves and like that's not why you should be here making art like you, you know you should be making art be, for the sake of the art like because you have to because it's in your like if you don't you will die and um like regardless of who sees it or who views it so like I don't know I feel like a lot of people would just kind of get swept up in the whole like subscribers and the, the views and the whatever whatever and i'm like that's that's not the point karen so. <laughs> yeah well, and then so yeah that's i mean that's a whole other element of like why you're doing the art um and I maybe we'll have you back said. we'll talk more about art theory <laughs> yeah uh but with regards to just the collaborative process it's like i'm not drawing every single frame this this short film is 24 frames per second it's about eight and a half minutes long it's over eleven thousand individual drawings, individual works of art, over 11,000 frames in this. And as the writer-director, I drew none of them. <laughs> but I get to work with people who are more talented than me at what they do. And my job is to just make sure that the composer and the editor and the animators, uh, everyone's making the same film. Uh, but I have to appreciate and recognize that they're, like, let them do what they do best. And I think that will give you credibility is if people who you're working with feel like you see them, you really see their talent, you see what they have to offer, and then they're gonna wanna put their best foot forward because that's you know intoxicating. I mean, that's like you want people, you want, I wanna work with people who see me and appreciate what I'm bringing to the table. And so as the director, I have to do that for my team. And I have to, you know, steer the ship for sure. And, and when something's not right, you know, make those notes and corrections. But also when they're doing something that is right, especially when I, it's like coming from them, especially if, if, if they just took a risk and I see that and it works, letting them know, oh, I see that, that was good. And then they want to do that more. And, 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 and that's part of the fun of the collaborative process is I want to see what you're going to bring to it. And... Um, so anyway, that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I think that's... Oh, yeah, and, and that's definitely, too, because, like, that's one of the, the main reasons I have a production team. Like, people who look at, me, look at me uncharitably, like, oh, she's lazy, oh, she just doesn't want to do the work herself. And, um, and it's really just because... It's more because of the collaborative process and just to also just try to make, you know, as much good art as we can, you know? Like, at the same time, like, not sacrificing quality and, you know, having a backing board because, you know... I like to think I'm funny, maybe, but, like, you know, getting feedback on, on the jokes, on the timing, on the pacing, like, those are all important things, too, and you can't really do that if you're just in your own space, um, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. So. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there is aspect, like, writing, I think, is can be fairly solitary, and, um, you know, there, there's certain jobs that are more isolated than others. Uh, or less collaborative than others, but but even with the writing, I mean, I had written the first draft of this, and um, I guess I decided. Well, are we going with spoilers or not? Well, but the, let's just say the ending was different. Um, the ending had kind of cut off much sooner, and the producers were like, "I think you can go bigger with it." And we kind of put our heads together, and, and you know, the whole thing at the end where it goes to color, 
little bit of a spoiler, but goes to color. Like that, that came about from putting my head together with producers and the producers saying, I think you could do more with this ending. And if I, if I was, you know, th- sometimes there's moments where, you know, you, you go, well, no, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I don't care about your opinion, but uh, I'm glad that the producers said that. And I'm glad that I was listening in that moment and what they said seemed to strike a chord and we kind of put our heads together and, and um, came up with a, a, an ending that I think is much more spectacular. And I love, I love the ending. So, um, yeah, being open to that creative uh, collaboration, you know, uh, there's also arguments to be made in the other direction of, you know, you don't want to make a film or make a work of art by committee and just asking everyone to raise their hands. And, you know, you, you want to impose your vision for sure. But at the same time, you want to be open to other people's suggestions. It's, it's a tricky balance. I'm not exactly sure when to lean into which side of, you know, the kind of necessary selfishness that great artists have in which they're entirely themselves and imposing a vision that comes from their soul. And you kind of feel that when you're watching it, there's like a sort of a tuning fork element where, you know, something in the film like resonates on a particular frequency that that works with you and like harmonizes with whatever frequency you're on, not to sound all woo-woo, but... Uh, and I don't know when exactly to lean into the other end of that where it's like well no it takes a village and no one can do everything by themselves and other people have brilliant contributions to make and everyone at the end of the thing should feel like their DNA has been imbued in the final child of the artwork and yeah it, it is a balance I'm not exactly sure maybe you have some thoughts on this like when you lean into what uh, when you say no, this is my thing, and when you say no, this is our thing. I mean, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, it really just comes down to trusting your instinct. Like, there's not really any like other school of thought, and like just learning, just kind of learning, and like you know, like we Jews love to learn. So like, like absorbing all the information you can about the other, the other how. Like other people do it, like Spielberg. Like again, and not 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 just name all the Jews, but like just people with creative. <laughs> There's a vision. lot of us in the. Yeah, yeah. Like business. I was gonna be like, oh yeah, you, these Coens are running Hollywood, yo. <laughs> but um, but um, yeah. Um, kind of just seeing what their take is, because like you know, I feel like you know, as an like in general, as an artist person, like. Like, being a good draftsman is something you can... Like, you either have the talent from the get-go, or it's something you have to work at, or a mix. And just sure. because you you don't start off as a good draftsman, and you don't start off with those um, instinctual beats, like, you just, you're just not sure, you can learn them, but it's going to take more effort and time. And, and, and some people are willing to do that and become great artists, and some people... Are not and like the most famous example of someone who just took put the time in to learn the skill, even though he didn't have the um, the best that um, the he didn't have the natural skills is um, our friend Michael Jordan. Do you know the Michael Jordan story? The basketball player. Uh huh. I've heard of him. Okay, you've heard of him. Did- He's relevant. Um, well, I know it's it's kind of an. He awesome. made some shoes or something, right? I don't. Know. Yeah, right. We, he's, he was with the bunny we were talking about a little bit ago, but like Jordan's a really classic example of like someone who didn't have 
the instincts and worked at it to get them because um so the story is Jordan didn't make his high school basketball team. And that I am he, aware of, yeah. Yeah, so and his and the coach was like, here's all the things you can do to get better. And he did it and he did the work. And now he's known as like one of the greatest basketball players that's ever lived. And yeah. you know, well he's still alive even, which is even a bigger like, you know, like compliment to how amazing he is. Um, his school level from someone who, you know, sports are neat, I guess. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, so yeah. that's just kind of what I, I, I tell, like, you know, when I deal with parents and kids who want to be animators, which is like, well, if you don't have the, if you just don't have the artistic instinct, that's okay. But that just means there's going to be more work involved. And like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta show up and do the work or else this isn't happening, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great message to send. And I also think uh, for people who do have talent, don't don't rest on that laurel. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no substitute for just showing up and doing the work. I mean, if right. any of your listeners have made it this far, what I will say is when I started this short film, which has gone on to you know multiple festivals, it's been amazing seeing it on a big screen. People have been coming up after the screenings and saying how much they love it. And uh, we won Best Animated Short at Arizona International Film Festival, Best Animation at Big Apple Film Festival. We've still got a lot more to go. Going to London in August, uh, Asian American Film Festival uh, in end of July. Uh, I, I say all that not to brag, it's just, you know, it's like I You're did there. not like, really brain, know right? what I was doing. Like when mm -hmm. I first started, I just had a story that I wanted to tell and I loved it. And I was I believed in the script, and this animation ended up taking three years. And if I was more experienced, it would have taken a third of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but I stuck with it, and the team stuck with it. And I guess what I'm saying is in line with what you're saying is you, there's no substitute for the work. Like, and mm -hmm. if you love animation, if you love storytelling, and if you have a project that you really believe in. There is going to be hurdles, but you got to trust like you'll figure it out the, mm -hmm. one step at a time. I mean, all this stuff sounds really trite and cliche, but you know, for me, having worked on this for three years, uh, we did storyboards twice because I realized how many mistakes I made the first time. And I didn't know that with an animation when you do an animatic, which is basically... Um, oh, it's, it's, you, you, yeah. you, a little, you a small, like baby, baby's first animation. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I just made so many mistakes, and there's so many things about the process that I didn't know, and there's moments where I was feeling really impatient. I was like, why is this taking so long? And I'm like, okay, wait, hold on. Like, you know, I asked the animators to do, you know, four takes of this that is, you know, it's 10 seconds long, so it's 240 drawings. I'm asking them to do that four times. It's almost, you know, uh, like, it's almost like a thousand frames that I've asked them to do, and I'm wondering why it took, you know, so long. You know, th there's so much that I had to learn. You know, I've said this from the very beginning. There's a huge learning curve. But all that to say is I'm very proud of this film. And, and, you know, whether it's good or not is up to the individual viewer. I love it. And it got done just because, you know, I had the drive and the will to see it through to the end. And so, you know, if you are kind of new to this and you're listening to this and you're like, I would love to do an animation. I don't really know much about how to do it. Like, neither did I. And... Surround yourself with, you know, seek out talented people. And I think if you're passionate and you have a story that's, that's, you know, resonates with them, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll sign on. 
And if you have money, that helps. If you can pay them. If you have money, that helps. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's that actually kinda... the real message is just pay people. And then, you know, Got to have that money. Yeah. Yeah, I actually backtrack all right. on all that really nice flowery stuff I just said. It's really, you just pay people and then you'll get it done. <laughs> well, it's, it's that, like, I mean, I've done nonprofit for 10 years, so it's, it's, you know, nonprofit's possible, but it's a lot more psychological analysis. Let me, let me tell you, fam. So I'm sure you get that, you got that a little bit, but it's even like a much, it's a much deeper fish that you have to go into as far as like people's motivations for doing the thing and making sure they're not doing it for the wrong reasons and, you know, just the authentic, authentic, authenticism and, you know, blah, blah. But, um, all right. Well, before I do my rap shout out for, for, um, for Andrew who, who hooked us up, I, I, I think this was a really great conversation and, um, I'm, I'm glad he's, he's, he's out there doing his thing. Um, tell him I said hi. Okay. Okay, David. percent. Yes. Yeah, no, it was lovely chat with you. You have a very, uh, uh, wonderful sort of just breadth of knowledge of storytelling and film animation. There's a lot of things you said where I was like, I don't, I don't know. I need to go watch that or I need to go learn. What that <laughs> uh, so I, it, was, it was a really pleasure. I, I learned a lot from talking to you and I hope some. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I mean, that's me. like, you know, um, you gotta, you gotta, gotta share the gifts and share the knowledge and like, you know, you know, and I, I like, I, I really do it too to help like kids too, because like there's, I've been in that situation where I just like, and I'm sure you have in some regard too, where you're just kind of the outlier because you like the, these things that like you like cartoons, even though you shouldn't. And, you know, especially at your age, you're getting older, you're 14. Why do you still like Disney stuff? Um, and then, and I see myself, I see myself in them and I'm just like, let me use my knowledge to try to educate. So they can have, because like I'm at the I can feel that this point in my like my professional career is going to start going really fast from here. Like, just I'm just kind of ready for it. But um, you know, but I've I've you know I've I've been very dep- like I've been through periods of depression. Like I got I got mm. canceled. Like I don't I'm not gonna I, I don't mean to trauma dump you. Tra- dra- I don't mean to trauma <laughs> sure. dump on you. But this is just for the general audience who might not be aware. But like you know I Lay go it through- on us. I go through bad periods of depression. There was a period where um, I call it getting fake canceled, where, you know, a a lot of, you know, negative reads on me, a lot of first surface reads on me led to people like, you know, calling me a bitch and a psychopath. And I got really bad PTSD from it. Um, And, you know, and that's kind of like, like, that's Toby is my service animal doggo. doggo. He's a, he's a good bean, but um, you know, it's, like it's it's a shitty way to learn those lessons, but you know, I at least I learned them pretty well, and I want to try to use my knowledge to make you know, especially kids, especially kids with disabilities, who like this stuff, you know, who are the outliers, who are the difference, who are the the ones that 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 need to find their people. Like, hey guys, here's what I've learned about finding my people and how how it's helped me creatively, and it's it's been so like amazing. Like, let me you know, let me give you that knowledge. Like even, even after this, I have a call that I'm doing that I'm going to help me, you know, a 14 year old who is, who wants to be a professional animator and her mom. And I'm going to sit them down and say like, Hey, here's what everything I learned. And I think they're going to be a little bit surprised because I'm going to psychoanalyze them a little bit deeper than they probably were expecting. Um, because you know, that's, that's, that's a thing that I can do. Um, but I'm hoping that that will be, you know, helpful because, you know, I've, I've, I've been there. I've been the 14 year old who loves Kim Possible a lot and been isolated from it because, you know, no one wants to talk about it as deep as we just talked about a lot of Space Jam 2, for instance. So like, if I can, as a creator, if I can kind of give that people, like give people the guidance, but also give people like 
a, like a safe space and also like teach people to make meaningful content, even with pre-existing IPs. Like that's also my whole thing. Like it doesn't matter how you're inspired, whatever gets you going, whatever gets you to put the pencil to the paper, even if it is fan art, like if that's what gets, if that's what gets you to point A to point B, do it and hone it. And like, you know, you can always develop, like I, I had a really bad, really, really bad art art teacher who was just like you can't do IP you can't do that you got to create your own ideas and I'm just like but if IP is what like you get passionate about just like if religion is what people get passionate about and you know like you know the 16th chapel like you know again we're Jewish but you know that's still a good work of art you know um you know aesthetically and you know all the other good stuff but you know um that's just just fan art just it's just bible fan art like that's what got it going so, like, don't be afraid to embrace the children out here listening. Um, your art whoever's listening. Have, uh, if if yeah. your art teacher was in ancient Greece, he would tell Michelangelo, or sorry, not in ancient Greece, if, if, uh, if he was Renaissance. in uh, Renaissance Italy, he might tell Michelangelo, don't do the Statue of David. That's fan art to the Bible. Do, 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 draw, you know, create David because you, like, you want to create, I mean... I get it. Artists got to eat. You got to hustle. I'm joking, but it's just, you know, yeah, I, mean, I know, I like, know, I know what you mean. But like, I think like, the best, the right, best art comes want. from draw what you want. your your want, like whatever you're passionate about, you know. And I think that some people don't really take that seriously sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and and, and anything goes. And I think what's great about animation is it's it is such a purely creative medium. Like you can do a lot. You're not constrained by having a physical space like you are in mm -hmm. live action and physical actors. And, you know, I mean, all storytelling, I think, is is just, you know, it should be fun and creative or it can just be really deep and meaningful or whatever it is. But, but animation is real special in the sense that it's, it's, it's so open uh, stylistically, narratively. The things that you can do with animation... Uh, are very exciting and if you're someone who kind of needs that freedom of expression animation could be like a really good place for you so anyway, yeah I, I, I like what you're oh doing. i'll just i'll just end at one more point um i was gonna yeah, say yeah. like to, to to that to follow up on that point i think why animation is just so successful in general as compared to live action is that you can make creative decisions based on how you frame and draw your characters that you can't really do um, with live action. I think that's why it's it's also such a staple to kids is because kids can like a character aesthetically first and kind of use that as a stepping stone to understand like who they are and what their story is and kind of like hits all the beats. But you know, it's that's a harder sell for live action because you already, you know, they're they're just they're just people. You see people all the time, you know. Um so it's kind of it kind of just suspend your it you you suspend your suspension of disbelief like from the get-go essentially because like yeah, this yeah. is not this is not a person it's it's a cartoon but you know yeah, audiences approach animation with a, more of an open mind i think you know no, i've said this uh, to you know a bunch of people on the festival right? you know when you watch the simpsons you don't stop and go like people aren't yellow <laughs> you know but if you were watching a live action film and the people were yellow you'd be like i i need an explanation are they aliens? Mm -hmm. Is there a radioactive spill? You know, even when you watch something fantastical like Avatar or you watch, you know, Lord of the Rings, you know, and there's like orcs and stuff, you want those orcs to look realistic. You want them to look like what you think orcs might look like if they existed in the physical world. But in animation, that expectation of verisimilitude, that expectation that things need to look real, even if it's fantastical, that's just out the window. So... Mm -hmm. 
there's just endless possibilities. It's tons of fun. I don't mean to, you know, shit on live action. I love live action. I love shooting live action. I love making live there's action just, stuff. There's and just I want to make a rotoscope you know? one day to bring it back to that. But, um, but no, your passion for animation is really contagious and it's really fun. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It's great. I mean, you have a whole Ain't, ain't that podcast. the point, though, David? Isn't that the point? <laughs> your username is I love Kim Possible a lot. It's adorable. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really great talking to you and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah well, you can, you can, I, I go by, I go interchangeably Sorry, by what? Rachel and, or I said, I said, yeah, I go interchangeably by Rachel or KP. So if we ever, I'll probably, you know, if we ever meet up like sometime eventually to like chop, talk shop or you're on the show again, you can use those interchangeably. But like, that's what I really like about the username is it kind of like, if people get it, like, you know, the passion of like, just fan content and they get it but if they don't get it they're just like uh this is a 14 year old on the internet so that's kind of like i think why the content took off like in general um is people just didn't have any expectations for with with the username but like i like you know we have a very very professional presentation like we do a lot a lot more more than a lot of the other youtubers out there are doing as far as presentation and jokes and comedy and meta contextual you know discussions and stuff like that and I think people, it just, it just surprised people. And like, you know, I've seen that. I've seen people being like, oh man, I don't have any expectations of this child. And they're just like, oh wait, and this might, this might be your interaction too. Uh, your, your, um, your experience that you just had too, of just like, holy sh she knows her stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you know, really love animation. You really do know your stuff. It's great. Yeah. So, um. But yeah, it's it's kind of fun messing with people's expectations that way, you know, and, and prove, proving proving that you know you know I can I can talk shop for sure. So, but anyway, um, so if you've listened to the podcast the first time, hi hi Andrew, and then maybe some other people. So um, I'm if you didn't hear that already, I'm I love Kim Possible a lot a lot. Um, I'm a YouTuber. My that's my main channel is I love Kim Possible a lot. Please like comment subscribe. Um, we post videos, we're trying to get back to posting videos weekly again, but, uh, right now it's just based on the, the content, the quality of the content first. And, you know, so like we just did a cringe, you know, uh, Kim Possible video, which was a funny video, but not like a very serious, serious thesis video. Um, and then, you know, um, and then we, again, we're trying to get back into podcasts like at least once a week. So I'm doing a bunch of recordings in general and stuff and things. So, you know, if you're new, I think we're on episode like 85 or something, you know, we've have a, we have a decently sized backlog. So, um, you know, you, if you, if you, if you like what we had to say, then there's tons of homework about like, you know, multi-animator projects and like just animation principles or just kind of my experiences, anything you want to learn about, like the education, the knowledge is there for you to drink from the fountain of the knowledge um, you know, especially the children out there. Um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming, David. I'm sure hope, hopefully we didn't me. get too deep. Yeah. <laughs> what was that last part? Hopefully, I said, hopefully we didn't get too deep into it. <laughs> oh, we went down some rabbit holes for sure, <laughs> but uh, it was tons of fun. And uh, hopefully I'll make some more animation stuff and that'll give me an excuse to come back on again. Okay. Well, you know, now that I know you're friends with Andrew, I can, I can just, bother bother it's like hey you know since i'm here you know <laughs> anytime i need to all right you know what uh, i'm gonna go see elemental if you want to do a podcast talking about that we could do that oh okay uh, yeah that's yeah i have that that's that's a good note because i have i haven't seen that either i also 
Like, there's also a bunch of things I need to, still need to see. But, yeah, I'll make a mental note if there's anything that I feel like would be a good podcast discussion. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I would okay. love to do a podcast on how maniacal, manipulative, and dark Pixar movies are. Because I think Pixar <laughs> is the... I know we're taking forever to wrap up. But, I mean, just real quick, if you think about Finding Nemo, for example, which is an adorable movie about fish. No, it's about a guy whose whole family is murdered in the first two minutes of the film, he's left with one kid who's uh, disabled and gets kidnapped. He meets alcoholic sharks and pothead <laughs> turtles. I mean, that is a crazy movie. Meanwhile, his kid Nemo is waiting to be shaken to death by a girl with braces. That's dark. Yeah. I could do a whole podcast about how how just truly, truly dark. Oh my God, Pixar don't even is. get me started up, you know. <laughs> but okay, all right, we need to wrap up. Uh, save it for another time. Okay, sounds good. Well, I mean, you, you, your people will talk to my people, if anything, you know. Um, but yeah, we're starting to build a quench anyway, so, um, or cue or whatever. So if, if so, I feel like there's a natural beat, then um, sure, I will, I will totally hit you up, okay? All right, thanks. Okay, um, and take then care. just, yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. Whoa. Thank you so much for listening to Animation Communication on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting provider. We are really hoping the show makes a difference in how people view animation, as well as media as a whole, as well as giving and providing advice for people all over the world who like and want to join the animation and media industry. If you like what you heard, please remember to show support by giving a like, a follow, rating those five stars, as well as subscribing to our main I Love Kim Possible A Lot channel on YouTube, and turn your notifications on. New episodes of Animation Communication come out every Wednesday at 6am EST on podcasting platforms and 4pm EST on YouTube. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the KP Podcast for information on upcoming guest episodes and more, as well as our hosts KP and Lyle Convoy at I Love KP a Lot and at Lyle Manbad on social media. I'm Lucy and thank you for being a part of our community. See you next time on Animation Communication.